All right, so our study in Ephesus, um, you may notice if you've looked at the schedule, this morning most of what we're going to do is going to be background. We have a lot of information about the church at Ephesus, about the founding of that church, and then a unique look at a period of time in that church. We have snapshots of uh, some of the issues that they had and how they were told to resolve those issues. So I want to make sure that we have looked at all of that before we actually start into the text. We will start into the text a little bit uh, this morning, but not, not get very far on that. We'll spend most of our time in uh, Acts and Revelation this morning. So let's start right off with uh, just a little bit of intro. Uh, the letter claims to have been written by the Apostle Paul, and I see no reason to question that. Um, pretty straight ahead. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, there are always those who question, even when it states the author clearly, is that the author, right? And they start looking at, well... We don't see the same style of writing or we don't see the same personality here that you see in other letters. It is interesting in Ephesus, and, and what, what other letter closely parallels Ephesus? Colossians, yeah. Uh, the assumption is kind of made because the way Colossians is written, it has some specifics uh, of, of things that it addresses and people that it mentions. Ephesians, not so much. So kind of the assumption is that Colossians was written first, and then Paul said, okay, some of the, many of the things, the challenges they're having in the church at Colossae, they may be having in the church at Ephesus. So he wrote a letter that was related. But these letters probably were passed around anyway. So when you think about it that way, it kind of makes sense. But the letter to the church at Ephesus does not mention specific issues that it's trying to solve, right, in that local church. All right, so the time frame, this letter was written uh, between 61 and 63 AD uh, during Paul's Roman imprisonment, probably toward the latter part of that imprisonment. It's, it's one of the letters that's considered to be uh, prison epistles, that would be Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 6, 21 kind of gives us a little bit of information about how this letter got to the church. Ephesians 6, 21, 22, now so that you also may know about my circumstances as to what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. So it was Tychicus and Onesimus that carried this letter, as well as the, uh, the letter to the Colossians, to deliver those. So the city of Ephesus 
and background about that, um, Ephesus was a very thriving seaport. At the time of this writing, it was estimated between quarter of a million and 300,000 people that lived there in Ephesus. It was a seaport at the time on the Aegean Sea. Prosperous trade center. Uh, it was a society that was full of religious superstition. They had lots of sorcerers and magicians, as we're going to uh, see today. And it was the site of the temple of Diana or Artemis. And that at the time was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. So it was a, it was a very big deal. But because of all of that, as we'll see as we go through some of the passages in Acts, uh, we're going to see some of the challenges that that, that caused. All right, so let's go through kind of the history of the church. And again, we've got a lot of information, and I think it's really good for us to refresh ourselves on that before we actually get into the text. So let's start with kind of the history starts in Paul's second missionary journey, about 52 AD. So let's start in Acts, the 18th chapter. Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. Now Paul, when he had remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Paul first had his hair cut at Centuria, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now, he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but took leave of them and said, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, where he had landed in Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So, Paul is only there this first time in about 52 AD. He's only there a very short period of time. Actually had opportunity to stay and teach longer, but said, I'll come back and I will do more teaching, which, of course, he does in the third uh, missionary journey. It's interesting to note that at this time, the Jews are at least open to his teaching, or at least there's a group of Jews that are open to him teaching and actually want him to stay and teach more. And we'll get to, we'll get to see some of that on his uh, third missionary journey. So Paul did come back. Uh, his third missionary journey was 54 to 56, and he spent a great deal of that time at Ephesus. So let's look at Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. Acts 19, verse 1, now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, on the contrary, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. 
When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So here we kind of see Paul finds disciples, but they are disciples of John. They've been baptized with John's baptism, and so they did not have a full understanding of the gospel. So does he say, that's all right? No. (laughs) He teaches them completely so that they are in a right relationship with God and then gives them uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Acts 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued to speak out boldly for three months, having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took the disciples away with him and had discussion daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul was able to preach and teach openly and boldly in Ephesus for a period of three years. That's a long time for him to spend there, right? Um, First with the Jews, and then uh, he moved the disciples once he started getting uh, pushback, heavy pushback from the Jews. And that's a significant statement at the end of verse 10. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, while he's there, he and the disciples that are there that are also teaching, they're going out from Ephesus and they are teaching those in other parts of Asia Minor and churches are being founded. Also, because this was a Roman capital, uh, you had lots of folks that came through Ephesus because it was a seaport at that time, came through Ephesus and then distributed out to the rest of Asia Minor. So you had a lot of people that would have come through, might have been taught by Paul or one of the other disciples, and then had moved on. Uh, but to, make, to be able to make that statement is pretty amazing. Any comments as we move on? All right, pretty straight ahead. So back up in verse 8, we've got a large Jewish population in Ephesus. And at least initially, we had a number of Jews that were open to Paul's teaching and his preaching. And... You know, you think about many of the places that he taught or that others that carried the gospel taught, they didn't last but a few days before the Jews were after them, right? In this case, he's got three months that he's able to teach, and we'll see when when the congregation begins to come together, some of the challenges they have, a lot of the Christians uh, are of Jewish background, And they carry some of that with them, but they were open uh, to the gospel. 
All right, so let's look at Acts 19, uh, beginning in verse 11. So God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went place to place attempting to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had the evil spirits, saying, I order you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Now there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest doing this. But the evil spirit responded and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, <clears throat> and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Also, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. So back verse 11, it said, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So do we see the miracles? What, what was the point of miracles to start with? Why did miracles exist? Yeah, to confirm the word of God. Would you say that that is what took place here? Most certainly, right? You did not have the written word assembled, but what they had was these miracles that they could perform, and because of that, they could confirm who they were. And when somebody else who was not in a right relationship with God attempted to do the same thing, what do we see that happened here? What's, yeah, yes, <laughs> failure. Uh, I think running out of the building naked is failure. <laughs> Not terribly successful, right? Um, so we see just exactly what these miracles are intended to do and the fact that they are uh, very successful. Verse 18 Many of those who practiced magic kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. So many of the sorcerers and magicians came confessing their practices and were burning their magic books. And it says uh, those books amounted to a value of 50,000 pieces of silver. Now think about sometimes when we, I don't know if you do this, <laughs> I do this to a certain extent. When I meet someone, someone new, and I know I'm going to have, like I'm, I may have a business relationship with them and may have opportunities to speak to them on an ongoing basis and may have opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. Well, I kind of want to get a little background on them if I can, right? Not that that's going to change whether you share the gospel with them or not, but it may help you in how you approach them. Well, I know early on in my Christianity, I would think, well, that person, they're, 
you know, they're just about there. I mean, all they'd have to do is get wet and they're, you know, they're such a good person. Or you'd see someone else and you'd say, man, they've got way too much to give up, right? Or they're in an unscriptural marriage and, you know, I just don't know if somebody can give that up. And then you see a situation like this where you've got magicians and people who may be making their living in a way that says, I just, the gospel is true. I'm going to be obedient to the gospel, but I have to give the rest of this up. <laughs> I'm going to put it in a pile and I'm going to burn it, right? So don't ever think that um, somebody has too much to overcome. The gospel has the power to change that. Yes? Hang on, microphone coming. I just wanted to say, um, that reminds me um, of a missionary we had in Tanzania. Um, there was a little boy that, um, that worshipped idols. They worshipped idols in the, vi in the village. And they used to pray to the idols all the time for healing or whatever. And then one day, somebody got sick and prayed to God instead of the idols, and the person got better. And he took all the idols, they took all the idols, and they burned them. And they, they immediately wanted to know more about God and Christ and stuff like that. So it is possible. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. All right. So the word of the Lord, verse 20, was growing and prevailing mightily. All right, so let's look at Acts 20, beginning of verse 17. So all of this that we're seeing is the foundation. We don't have something that says, and the local church at Ephesus started on, you know, January 1st. We don't have that, but what we can see is uh, people obeying the gospel, and I'm sure with uh, the folks that Paul had brought with him to start, that they had begun worshiping together probably back uh, during his second missionary journey, but certainly at least, at the very least, uh, early on in the third missionary journey. So Acts 20, verse 17 from Miletus, he sent word to Ephesus. So this is, this is Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, after he has left Ephesus. He sends word to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church. So these are the elders of the church there at Ephesus. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials, which came upon me, through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shirk from declaring to you anything that was beneficial and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus 
to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all people. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. <coughs> Excuse me. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So here Paul has his final, <coughs> excuse me, face-to-face -face discussion with the elders in the church at Ephesus. And he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Verse 28, and that savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. That's some pretty, when you think about it, I mean, we read through things like this all the time, but, but that's uh, a pretty dramatic picture that it paints in your mind when you talk about the flock, the congregation being sheep, and that wolves are going to come in and teach error and try to snatch away members of the congregation. Now, obviously, this is, you know, this is going to happen. This is spiritually speaking, not physically speaking. But it's still a very strong warning to these elders. Now, whether Paul had some knowledge of, you know, through the Holy Spirit, of something that was specifically going to happen, or whether he just knew these are the challenges that we have and these are the challenges you as elders are going to have in shepherding the flock, I don't know. But either way, uh, the warning, as we'll see as we continue, um, was necessary. And it also says that those are going to arise from within yourselves. So there'll be those that come in from outside and there will be those that will arise from within the congregation. We have to be so careful. And we as members of a local church, you know, the elders have their responsibility and accountability for oversight. But every one of us as a member here has responsibility to help keep the congregation on track. Are elders perfect? Elders are human beings. They're, they're mature, they're wise, they meet the qualifications, but they're human beings just like the rest of us. Churches only have problems because they have people, right? Without people, it's easy. Uh, with people, it's not. And so at any time, there can be something that takes place from the outside or from the inside. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he warns them strongly that he's not going to be there. And of course, he would see them as his spiritual children because he's been there for three years, right? 
and, and watched and nurtured the church there. Now, you would think a church that starts from three years of the Apostle Paul, you couldn't, you couldn't get a much better start than that, right? And yet, when he leaves, they're going to have challenges. I mean, they already have challenges, but they will have more when he leaves. All right, let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. <coughs> First Timothy 1, beginning in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, and this is about 66 or 67 AD. So three or four years after Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, okay? And he's saying now, I'm starting to see this, Timothy, make sure that you instruct those who are teaching false doctrine not to do so. There are always people, there are always men who are going to try to use their influence to gain power over others, always. And so anytime... I can remember a congregation we were members of years ago, and uh, <clears throat> there was a new family. You can't know everything about someone when they come in, right? They had come from a sound church. Uh, before they got to know the man, they allowed him to start teaching early because they had a slot they had to fill, right? I understand that. That happens. He started teaching... Uh, he started teaching some significant error, which blew up pretty quickly. Uh, and the elders, you know, stopped him, talked to him. He was not willing to repent of that, nor was he willing to stop teaching that, and they left. Well, if you hadn't had elders there, how does that then get dealt with? Well, it gets to go into the good old men's meeting. And any of you who've ever been in a men's meeting know that that is, is it a way to deal with things? It is. It's the way you have to deal with things if you don't have elders, right? Uh, or something like that. Uh, but it's not good. And you can literally tear a church apart with one strong personality that comes in who isn't well vetted, or has hidden something and comes in and starts teaching error. It's so critical that the elders here are watchful and all the rest of us are watchful. All right, so where else do we see, <clears throat> outside of, of course, the letter to the church, where else do we see information about the church at Ephesus? Revelation. 
That's exactly right. This is kind of, this is very unique. I mean, you think about where else do we have a church that we have information over a, basically a 50-year period, right? That's very unique. So I want to take a look at Revelation, uh, the second chapter, beginning in verse 1. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and I know your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this letter, <clears throat> I believe, was written 95, 96 A.D. Some hold to an earlier date, uh, but I think there's better evidence for that time period. So this is some 33, 34 years after Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So we have that period of time that has passed. So what's the status report here on the church at Ephesus? Well, the positives, he says, your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, you cannot endure evil men, you test false apostles. Those are all positives. You have persevered, have endured, have not grown weary for the name of Christ Jesus. Again, positives. Verse 3. And then verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know what those were, but God hated them, so it's enough, right? They knew what they were, and, and uh, they hated them as well. Now the negatives. Verse 4. You have left your first love. So when we look at the seven churches and what's written to them, there are some, not many, but some that were completely positive, some that were completely negative, and then some that were like this that, <coughs> excuse me, had both positive and negative. What do you believe it means when it says you have left your first love? Because we don't have any further explanation to that. What do you think that means? Okay. Now they had they had positives, and he he doesn't say, "Look, you don't you know you don't need to persevere. Uh, it's okay to endure evil men." I mean, all all the things that are positive about the church at Ephesus, but they'd forgotten, right? They had forgotten their first their first love. Terry. <clears throat> yep. 
it would seem like if, if you think about the book of Ephesians, it's tightly divided into two sections. The first three books are really focused on the position of the Christian, all the things that God has done. The second half is really more the practice of the Christian, how they ought to live because of all the things that God has done in the position of the Christian. So when you connect it to Revelation, it seems like they've become so focused on the practice, on doing the deeds and, and the rote actions of a Christian, they've, they've forgotten and abandoned what it's all about, and that is loving Christ and loving God for all the things that he's done because the love of God and Christ will then move you to doing all the actions. Extremely well said. Not from the heart. No, I, I agree completely. I think, that's, I think that's exactly it. So, again, they weren't told to abandon those things, right? But they were told, this is everything that I need you to be and need you to do, not just part of it. Bruce, can we get him a mic, please? They were guilty of what they were guilty of what God's children initially did. They lost their first love of God, and God describes that as being a father in in Hosea, of holding their hands and teaching them to walk and loving them so much, even though they rejected Him, uh, He continually brought them back, but. It's symbolic of what God's children in the past have done. They've forgotten about him. They've gone after other gods. They have been ungrateful. Uh, they have not honored him as God. Oh, very good. No, that's, that's absolutely true. We have always got to make sure that we are doing everything as a church that God expects of us, Right? What are, if you had to boil down what's the purpose of a local church to a couple of things, a couple of big categories, what would they be? Okay. Okay. I would, I would say, if I boil it down, I would say to spread the gospel and to support the members of that congregation, both spiritually and physically. So that means, you know, teaching, preaching, uh, oversight, and then when needed, physically. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. I mean, God doesn't need... The church, he doesn't need us to worship him, does he? I mean, he could create thousands of beings that worshiped him day and night. We need the worship of God, the encouragement of one another, and the opportunity to uh, be strengthened and taught so that we can go out and share the gospel with others. Um, we need to make sure that we have not left our first love. Now... Verse 5, they're told to repent and do the first deed. So how long 
did Ephesus have to repent? Yeah, we don't know. That's right. I tried to trick you into an answer, but couldn't do it. Yeah, we don't know. What we do know is <clears throat> if they're told to repent or they're going to lose what? Yeah, they're going to lose their candlestick, which means they will no longer be in a right relationship with God. So at some point, even though they had some things they were very strong in, they had other things that they were not, and at some point, they were going to lose that candlestick. They were going to lose their relationship with God. I don't know what that point was, uh, and it doesn't say. But what I do know is if they didn't repent and they didn't change, they would no longer, they might still have Church of Christ out on the sign, but they would not be in a right relationship with God. So, right quick, we consider the timeline of everything we've looked at today. Basically, AD 52 uh, being the initial contact in Paul's second missionary journey, and then AD 95, 96, when this was written, okay? So, a basically a 40-plus year snapshot of this church. So if we had a 40-year snapshot of this congregation, you know, Don and I have been here two and a half years, so we don't have a very big part in, the, in that snapshot, right? But if we had a 40-year snapshot of this church, what would that look like? I don't know. I mean, I tend to believe this is one of the best and strongest groups of Christians that I know of. But... We don't know that we'll stay that way, right? We don't know what the future looks like. Here's what I do know. If we take 40 years from now, it's not going to be me and about 40% of the congregation that's going to be influence, strong influences on the church. Because statistically speaking, we won't be around, right? So it'll be those that are in their 20s and 30s and 40s now that will have influence over and uh, responsibility over this congregation. Again, if you go back to Ephesus, you go, you go back to their start, how could you have a better start than the Apostle Paul for three years? I would argue you can't have, right? And yet, did they have challenges after he left? Yeah, they did. So that says to me that no matter how strong the church is and how well things are going, you're not that far from things not going well if we're not careful, right? Which says we all have the responsibility to make certain that what we hand off to the next generation is accurate and uh, and follows God's word completely. We want to make sure that's the case. All right. We did not get into text this morning. We will, beginning next week, we'll just do all of chapter one. Okay, so be prepared for that, and we will get through uh, chapter one next week. I appreciate everybody's attention and participation.